Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher, where we discuss everything that brings us life. Come join the fun, we're talking about our lives. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher. This is your host, Shannon Fisher, and I've got a fantastic and interesting guest today. We are going to talk to Samantha Allen, who has written a book called Real Queer America, LGBT Stories from Red States. And Samantha took a road trip all around the United States into some decidedly conservative areas, the red states, and uh, looked to see what issues were affecting the LGBT communities there and what the communities were like. So I'm excited to talk to Samantha and have her tell us about her trip. Samantha, welcome. Thank you for having me. So what made you decide that you wanted to really dive into the the heartland of, of Red America to to see how LGBT people were living there? Yeah, my own uh, personal transition story and my love story both take place against a red state backdrop. I came out in Georgia. I met my wife in Indiana. All of my good friends live in East Tennessee. So after the 2016 election, when I saw maybe some anger from friends on the coast directed toward the red state, I wanted to kind of go back to a lot of these red states and say, there are a lot of inclusive, warm, accepting, welcoming places here um, that don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. There's there's a lot of good here, especially for LGBT people. Sure, sure. And and you really do. You, you dive into the communities. I found, uh, as you were talking about your earlier years, you, you grew up Mormon and were going to BYU. And, and this during this time when you kind of realized, okay, I'm, I'm trans. I'm, I, it obviously turned your world around because you're from an extremely religious Mormon family. And so in the book, you, you go into that and you talk about um, other, other religious bigotry that, that happens and people who are talking about LGBT being bad or how it is a behavior as opposed to an identity. And so it sounds like you really don't have a lot of resentment at all toward people who have that, but you want to educate them. What do you think is the best way to educate people who have religious bigotry toward LGBT people? I think that people's hearts and minds are changed as a sheer function of spending time with LGBT people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I met a Baptist pastor while writing the book who told me that, that her heart had really been opened up when a roommate that she had been living with for um, a year came out to her. Um, and so it's when you put a human face on LGBT issues, when, when you have a friend, a coworker uh, come out to you, it can change your perspective. You know, I think unfortunately, like, there are people who um, might have a really hard time coming around on LGBT issues, but I think what we are seeing is a, a slow, gradual evolution in a lot of faith groups on LGBT issues. I know the Methodist Church, for instance, is having a, a large and, and sometimes heated conversation about LGBT life. Uh, I know a lot of Mormons um, who are advocating for LGBT inclusion in the church. Um, you know, that's not my path. I left the Mormon church, but I really admire people who are kind of sticking around in faith groups because they'll change their faith groups just by being out within them. 
Sure, sure, and uh, and especially in churches who um, who don't accept. You can't be a member of the Mormon Church if you come out as LGBT and quote exhibit the behavior. And it, it, it how do Mormons who are LGBT manage to stay in the church knowing that their true identity is something that is frowned upon? So I I, I absolutely agree with you that I applaud them. Um, how does it affect their psyche? You know, it's challenging, and everyone is different. Everyone negotiates that differently. You know, some people really want to strictly and literally abide by the rules of the church, which would require them not to participate in any same-sex sexual behavior if you're gay or lesbian or not seek out surgery if you're transgender. Um, But then there are other people who are like, you know, God made me perfect, and I'm going to be me, and I'm still going to have faith in this and if the church kicks me out then they kick me out um and i think as you see more and more folks from younger generations taking that approach i think the older leadership is going to have to ask themselves some really hard questions about whether they want to stay a place where younger people would want to be members or whether they want to evolve Sure, sure. I actually have a lot of Mormons in my family, and most of them that are Gen X or younger have kind of stopped going to the church and have stepped away for these very reasons, because the, the, the younger generations, they, they just don't subscribe to that line of thinking anymore. One of my favorite lines in your book was, but as his use of the swear word substitute heck proves, Emmett is as unshakably Mormon as he is unshakably male. That was hilarious because uh-huh. I've never met a not nice Mormon person. That was the perfect way to put it. <laughs> yeah, I think there's been a process for me. Like when I first left the church, I was very angry. And then for for me, there's been a process of accepting that like Mormons are kind of my people, even though I'm not going to belong to the church ever right. again. I, you know, I like Diet Coke and I'm kind of a nerd and I'm, I'm sometimes a little too nice to people for my own good. Um, yeah, like I have a soft spot for Mormons, for sure. Most definitely. Well, having, you know, having been, been immersed in that, in, in that life for, for quite some time, I don't see how you couldn't because, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's hard to not enjoy being around genuinely nice people who genuinely care. Yeah. And and so switching to politics from religion, um, you, you talk a lot about the fight for LGBT equality legislatively in these red states. And it and it does seem that while culturally, uh, at, at least for the most part, there are at least very, very welcoming pockets that the Republican legislators in these states just aren't really keeping up with the times. Like you said, the best word to describe Texas is still. They still have all of these anti-LGBT laws in effect. And so for those who are staying in those states and who are fighting, how can they change the minds of the legislators other than changing the minds of the people voting? Yeah, I think change starts within your community first and and Mm -hmm. then ripples outward. So the good news is, you know, in these states, in states that voted for Trump in 2016, for instance, uh, over 180 of them have LGBT protections in their local non-discrimination laws. 
Mm-hmm. So there are, as you pointed out, all of these LGBT inclusive polit- uh, communities across the red states. The problem is that at the state level, politics are just so often in this gridlock where you hear stories of like Republican legislators, you know, off the record or something saying like, oh yeah, my, you know, my heart's in the right place on LGBT issues, but I just can't be in front of that right now. I think, I think no one really wants to be first sometimes in the Republican party on an LGBT issue because they're worried about getting hammered in a primary or losing a donation from an anti-LGBT group or something like that. Um, And, Gosh, I think eventually cultural acceptance will just reach this tipping point where if people want to win elections, they have to have pro-LGBT stances. But we're just kind of not there yet in terms of the political willpower in a lot of red state state legislatures. You know, I compare it to, like, climate change sometimes. Like, uh, if you look at, you know, if you go out and survey Americans, everyone knows that it's happening. Everyone kind of wants you know, legislatures, everyone kind of wants the government to address it. Mm -hmm. And yet, like, it's not going to happen for the same reason that a lot of things in American politics get stalled. Public opinion, right? Money, lobbying, yeah. It really is crazy. I I, I love the story you tell of a, a woman in Texas who has a transgender son. And it really does very clearly demonstrate that anti LGBT beliefs are taught and and that no one automatically discriminates against LBGT. She said he went back to school on a Monday with new pronouns and a new name and a new bathroom and he lost zero friends because kids don't give a fuck. And that is so true. Yeah, kids don't care. My wife and I have a, you know, five-year-old nephew and he's not like, I mean, you know, he sees just as many street couples as any other kid, but when he's with us, he's not like, wait, how does this work? Explain this to me. Right. Kids just accept people for who they are. Um, Yeah. And you said that this woman had invited a legislator to her house to have dinner with her and her son and to talk about these issues and that she was pretty much certain that she had managed to change his mind and that he was going to help uh, enact pro-LGBT legislation in Texas, but that he ultimately voted the other way for the very reason we were discussing, the the public opinion and that he didn't want to be the, the first one out. And so you talk about having to kind of make your own family um, in in queer communities because of lack of acceptance with, you know, your family of origin or trying to find a community where you definitely feel safe. And tell me a little bit about the process of your creating your family. Yeah, so I think during a period of time when things were kind of awkward with my own biological nuclear family, I ended up making a lot of friends in a small town in East Tennessee called Johnson City. It's just like a magical place kind of nestled in in the heart of Appalachia. Um, You know, it's got this adorable, like, 1920s downtown. Um, It's just, like, really a special place to me, but more special than, like, you know, the trees or the gentle rolling mountains or the people that I met there, many of them LGBT themselves, who just, like, really welcomed me um, into their homes, into their lives, and they became a sort of family for me. I would, I would do anything for them. They would do anything for me. 
That is that is wonderful. Yeah, to the the people that you bond with, but you, I mean, the the bond with people that you choose as your family is sometimes even closer than the bond that you have with people who share your DNA because you have absolutely chosen these people. These people are not in your life because they have to be. They are in yeah. your life because you choose them. Now, speaking of choosing, you met your wife in the most interesting of places. So, if you, I would love it if you would share with the listeners how you met your wife. Yeah, so I was doing, this was a year into my gender transition about, I was doing a summer research um, trip to Bloomington, Indiana, where the Kinsey Institute is housed, uh, the famous collections of Alfred Kinsey, the sexologist who came up with the, the Kinsey scale from, you know, zero to six um, that measures your sexual orientation. Um, and so, you know, I was like not really thrilled honestly, about spending a summer alone in small town Indiana uh, in the first year of my gender transition. I still had a lot of learning to do about how LGBT inclusive these communities can be. But on my third day in the Kinsey Institute, um, I got into the elevator to go down to the lobby and someone got into the elevator with me and she said hi and I said hi and we went out to dinner together and six years later we're married. Uh, her name's Corey, and yeah, we met in like the most queer rom-com way possible. In, um, in the it really is the perfect yeah. story. I mean, it's the perfect story. Where better to meet to meet your queer partner spouse than at the Kinsey Institute? I mean, that is that is absolutely perfect. Now, yeah. so yeah. you have become a journalist. And, and and I know that you cover LGBT issues and non-LGBT issues. What do you find are the topics that need more representation in the media? Mm, yeah, I think, you know, I wrote the book in part out of a frustration with what I wasn't seeing covered in LGBT media or in national media when they cover mm-hmm. LGBT issues. You know, I think they're like two kinds of stories that, that really kind of travel widely um, with a media audience, one is like, oh, North Carolina is passing some terrible anti-LGBT law. Let's all look at North Carolina and have our preconceptions about North Carolina affirmed by this terrible law that they're passing. Or on the flip side, there are these stories that are very like individualistic and isolated from context about like the you know transgender pageant contestant or the the gay prom king or something like that. Um, and where we can look at them and be like, wow, I can't believe there's a gay prom king in Alabama or something like that. And I think both of those come from a place of, like, underestimating red states and not really seeing the full, like, fabric of LGBT life in these places. Absolutely. Um, so, I'm I'm yeah. from the South as well. And, and everyone, everyone just automatically assumes that it's going to be ignorant, uneducated people who are hateful. And that is so, as you very aptly describe in this book, that is so not the case. Yeah, I want to see more stories that aren't North Carolina's passing this law because they're out there. You can find these stories like, you know, Jackson, Mississippi is holding its first pride parade. Tuscaloosa, Alabama has a pride festival or such and such a city is passing an LGBT inclusive non-discrimination ordinance or, you know, this youth shelter in Salt Lake City is saving LGBT youth lives like uh, I mean, there's this dramatic transformation happening across the country, and, and I think people are starting to notice. I, I hope my book helped a little with that, um, but it's it's nowhere near 
enough. It's nowhere near equitable either. Like half of the LGBT population lives in these more conservative places, and yet in terms of media representation, it's still very like coastal, big blue city focused. That is very true. There tends to be a lot of generalization, and they paint with a, with a very wide brush and don't tell those individual stories like the ones that you just mentioned, highlighting firsts and, and successes and, and just real-life happenings of the LGBT community in the red state. Now, you said that Atlanta is like the gateway drug. It's the gateway to the South for LGBT. What do you mean by that? Atlanta, I think... Um Gosh, in like Georgia, almost 5% of the entire population statewide is LGBT, which is which is pretty high for an individual state. And Atlanta is just like the queerest city I I have ever been to. <laughs> the LGBTQ community there is is large, but it's also small at the same time. And that like you kind of if you know one person, you know somebody else who knows them. Um, Folks are just kind of a little warmer and welcoming. It's not perfect, of course, um, but gosh, I felt so held and supported by the LGBTQ community in Atlanta when I came out. And then, you know, when I go, like, <laughs> around the same time, because my, my wife and I were long distance for a while, she was living in New York, like, you see, like, the LGBTQ scene in a place like Brooklyn or something, and it can be, like, really clicky and... I don't know. You know, sure. it just wasn't for me compared to that, like, southern feel. Right. So there is that welcoming southern hospitality across all communities in the south. So um, I love that, that you that you find that in southern cities also in the LGBT community. So yeah. where would you, if you could pick anywhere in the country to live the rest of your days, where would it be? Gosh. Um, so assuming that, like, I don't need... I don't need money or I don't have to be close to my family or that kind of thing. Um, you know, I would really love to live in Appalachia somewhere, like have just a, a cabin somewhere and write and um, I don't know, you know. Sure. You yeah, it's beautiful. Have Yeah. Yeah, it was summer, spring, winter, fall, it doesn't matter. The, the the mountains are absolutely, absolutely gorgeous in all of Appalachia, north to south. And so you're going to be at the Miami Book Fair next month. Tell me about that. Yeah, my wife and I actually lived in South Florida for three years um, while I was writing the book. Um, and I'm so thrilled to be going back to Miami for this event. You know, it's a special place for me, it's where Corey and I uh, eloped in a courthouse in Coral Gables, and um, you know we loved to kind of get out of the city and go drive down the Florida Keys, have lunch, watch the sunset. It's just a beautiful part of the country, and I'm so thrilled to be bringing Real Queer America there. Yeah, and I'm excited that the Miami Book Fair led me to you. I don't know um, when I would have encountered your book otherwise. It might have been a while because I, I really, really enjoyed it. You're, I, I love your writing voice. You're a very, very talented writer, and you really pull the reader in to understand exactly the theme that you're in at that moment. Thank you so much. I wanted the book to feel like you're going on a road trip with me. I wanted it to feel like, for better or for worse, you're stuck in my front seat, and we're going to go all around the country and see new people and right. and experience new things together. 
Um, and that's yeah. exactly how it came across. It's it's wonderful. And so, well, unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, but I will say that you will be at the Miami Book Fair on Sunday, November 24th at 1.30 p.m. So anyone who wants to meet you or get their uh, book signed or hear more of what you have to say can, can see you there. And I just thank you so much for your time and for all of the work that you're doing and for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight. That's it for now. I will see all of you next time.